Hello, everyone. I'm Adam White. On behalf of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to a discussion of the Supreme Court's upcoming year in regulatory litigation. This is an annual event for us, and frankly, of all the things we do here at the Gray Center, this is one of my very favorites. Last summer, the Supreme Court wrapped up its year's work with some major decisions on administrative law. Now the court has returned to work with a docket of cases presenting important issues of administrative law, the Constitution, and transparency. And to discuss these issues, we have a really terrific set of experts joining us today. Jonathan Adler of the Case Western Reserve University, Aditya Bamzai of the University of Virginia, and Katie Townsend of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Because our time is limited, I won't introduce our three experts in detail, but I'd encourage you to look up their work. As you can see from their biographies online and on the Gray Center's website for this event, they're leading experts in the issues at hand, and I'm very, very grateful that they can join us. Each of our guests will begin by focusing on one or more cases of particular interest, and then we'll have a discussion, including questions from you, our friends in the audience. We'll start with Aditya Bamzai on agency structure and appointments, and Katie Townsend on the Freedom of Information Act, and then Jonathan Adler on some broader themes. So Aditya, welcome. Could you please tell us about the big issues before the court in Collins versus Mnuchin and United States versus Arthex? Absolutely, um, Adam, and uh, uh, I'd like to thank you for having me at this event. Uh, I've been here I think, once or twice before for this event. It's one of my favorites as well. It's uh, one of those moments where we all have a chance to uh, get stuck on where the court might be going with administrative law issues in the commentary. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm going to uh, focus on administrative structure issues and uh, on two cases in particular, the Collins versus Mnuchin case and the Arthur's case. And uh, for those of you who've been following the court's document, questions of agency structure have been uh, uh, relatively high profile over the last few terms. Uh, and so you might be familiar with cases like Lucia versus SEC from a couple of terms ago, and the Siebelwalk case uh, against the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for the last term. And I'll, I'll make mention of each of those cases as I actually go into the two cases that are pending before the court this term. So um, let me start with Collins, which is in fact uh, the, the case that was uh, granted um, first of these two cases. And so it's already on the docket to be heard in December. And the case involves uh, some devilishly uh, tricky statutory questions and uh, financial backdrop, um, which I will gloss over just because I think for purposes of time, we can't only discuss that at, at a certain uh, level of generality that people really want to get into it and talk about it during the Q&A. Um, essentially, what's happening in this case is a case involving the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is uh, what is commonly known as an independent agency. It's headed by a single director who is removable by the president only for cause. And in August 2012, just in a nutshell, cut to the chase, the FHFA purported to act as a conservator for these uh, federal corporations, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, nationalized corporations and removed private shareholders from their capital structures. Uh, and to provide a little bit more of a backdrop of what was happening in the case, um, everybody, I assume, on the call will be familiar with the financial crisis of 2008, which leads to losses of more than $100 billion at these two enterprises uh, in a relatively short period of time. And because of that, it prompted in part by that, Congress announced a statute known as the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, which creates the FHFA to regulate the enterprises. And as I mentioned, the FHFA is created with a structure headed by a single director appointed by the president with the advice of the Senate with a five-year term removable for cause. And uh, for those of you who follow the CFPB litigation, uh, perhaps the structure wouldn't surprise you because the CFPB is created approximately the same time with approximately the same structure. Well, um, so, so let, me, uh, let me just, from 2008, the creation of the FHFA, fast forward to 2012, where the FHFA uh, engages in this uh, conservatorship uh, activity with respect to the two enterprises. And uh, the, uh, the, the, between 2012 and 2016, now, uh, various shareholders 
use some of the value of stock in the uh, enterprises. And cases in 2016 are initiated by some shareholders um, raising various statutory claims, essentially that the FHFA exceeded its statutory authority and acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner um, when it, uh, when, when it uh, took over the, uh, the two enterprises. And uh, the plaintiffs also argued that the FHFA is a constitutional structure. And this case makes its way through the federal court system, ultimately before the Supreme Court to the Anbah Fifth Circuit. And the Anbah Fifth Circuit uh, holds that, yes, some of the, uh, the statutory claims can survive a motion to dismiss, and that the for cause removal protection violates Article Three, sorry, Article Two of the Constitution. And we've now reached the Supreme Court, and we have a couple of statutory issues that have been teed up for the court's resolution, and the separation of powers issue also teed up now. And, uh, and with respect to the statutory issues, I'll just go through them extremely quickly, just so that people have a sense of what's happening here, um, but we won't perhaps get into the details unless folks want to. Um, there's a provision which the parties refer to as the succession clause, and that is 12 USC 4617 B2A, so already you can get a sense of the complexities here we're looking at subsections of the US code. Um, that says that during a conservatorship, the FHFA, quote, succeeds the shareholders' rights with respect to the companies and their assets. And there's a question whether this precludes the plaintiffs bringing their own statutory challenges when the FHFA is needed to these rights. There's another provision which the parties will refer to, anti-injunction clause, and that is whether this provision 4617F prohibits courts from taking any action that would restrain or affect the exercise of powers or functions of the agency as a conservator, um, whether that precludes courts from joining um, what the FHFA did uh, in 2012. So there are these statutory issues that are at stake in the litigation, you know, what kind of rights do plaintiffs have once the FHFA creates this conservatorship? Is there a provision that precludes the, uh, the plaintiffs from bringing the challenges? And then um, what connects this case to my, the theme of my, uh, my talk is that the, uh, the plaintiffs have challenged the FHFA structure on much the same grounds that the um, plaintiffs have challenged the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's structure. And it, in fact, uh, the grounds are so similar in some ways, I might say, um, that the plaintiffs in their brief for the Supreme Court, they, they essentially got paid argumentation on this constitutional issue, uh, in which they say, uh, for the reasons already uh, uh, stated in the law, the Consumer, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau held to be a constitutional structure last term. Similarly, the FHFA is unconstitutionally structured. Uh, and it's just politically charged to seal the law. Similarly to seal the law, we have a situation where the, uh, the parties to the case, the government and the plaintiffs, are not defending the constitutionality of the structure of the agency. And the court has appointed an amicus in order to make that defense. And uh, in seal the law, um, there, uh, there was similarly a disappointed. Um, in order to defend the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, the, the amicus in this case is uh, Professor Aaron Wilson, professor at uh, BYU Law School, and he has done uh, a very good job with his amicus brief that was filed last week uh, defending the structure of the agency, drawing some distinctions between the FHFA and its functions and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and its functions. And perhaps I'll just walk over that for just a moment and we can get into that and back and forth. What, what could some of the possible arguments be? So that's, that's the, uh, the, uh, Collins versus Mnuchin case in a nutshell. And I'll just move over to the Arthritis case, which appears at least facially to present a very distinct issue, but actually there's a great deal of overlap. Think about the Arthritis case, um, and what's really going on there with the, uh, with the constitutional kind of intricacies are. In, in the case. So the Arthrex case um, deals with these uh, judges who uh, form the, um, who, who are uh, members of what is known as the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, 
um, which is an adjudicatory component that is a body placed within the United States Patent Trademark Office. So within the USPTL, there is this uh, board called Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, um, it engages in certain determinations with respect to patent validity um, and, uh, and uh, that, that, that otherwise can at times be litigated in federal uh, courts and Article III courts um, in the, the normal adjudication process. Um, it was a complicated um, balance between what the PTAP, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, does and the um, the, uh, the the federal courts do. Um, so, so the question arose um, some years ago, and in fact, one of my colleagues, Professor John Duffy here at the University of Virginia, wrote in 2007 um, a short piece asking whether these judges who are on the PTAP are, in fact, um, officers of the United States or whether they are employees of the federal apply to them, such that the appointments clause would apply to them. And he pointed out at that time that if, in fact, they were officers of the United States, at that time, they were not being properly appointed um, for, for reasons that were not really taken by this. And so the point is that questions about the structure of PTAP have been lurking in the background uh, with respect to the appointments clause for a good long while. And the question that arose at that time was, are these judges officers or are they employees? And, uh, and the, the executive branch at that time created its fix to treat them as officers and appoint them appropriate to if they are in fact officers under the appointments clause. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and therefore that, that, that particular issue got moved. And we fast forward now about a decade and a half. And a new issue has arisen again under the appointments clause. And if I just remind everybody what the appointments clause says, you know, to the extent that you weren't following the officer employees, which is probably this will make it clear as I, as I read out part of the text of the appointments clause, the, the appointments clause provides that the president shall nominate, combined with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint officers of the United States. And then it goes on to say, but the Congress may by law best Appointment of inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. And there's a distinction that appears on the face of this clause between those officers who have to be appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate by the president alone, and the, that is, um, the, the, those officers are often termed principal officers, and the officers who can be appointed by heads of departments by the president alone without advice and consent. And, uh, or by the courts of law, they are deemed inferior officers. And there's a category now, uh, individuals who are not expressly mentioned in the clause, who we sometimes will refer to modern doctrines as, as employees. And they don't have to be, um, they don't have to be appointed pursuant to any of these procedures whatsoever. So that earlier debate had to do with whether the PTAP judges fit within the appointments clause at all, whether they were, uh, inferior officers at all, or whether they were employees. And that became mooted. And uh, for, for those of you who were um, following Supreme Court cases, um, it seemed very likely in light of the Lucia case, which held that ALJs within the Security Exchange Commission are in fact officers, that PTAB judges are now going to be deemed officers under Supreme Court precedent. So that issue that was mooted, it seems uh, likely that, uh, that in fact, uh, Professor Duffy's earlier argument these uh, judges are least officers at the very least was correct under the case ultimately uh, decided uh, in the context of ALJs. And, uh, and so um, we, uh, we're, we're left here with um, the, the uh, determination that these uh, PTAP judges are officers. And the question might arise, and that's, this is what's the state in the Arthur's case, whether they are principal officers or inferior officers. And if, in fact, they are principal officers, then they are not appropriately appointed pursuant to this provision. And everybody agrees, they don't go through advice and consent through the Senate. If, in fact, they are principal officers, they are not appropriately appointed. If they're inferior officers, they are appropriately appointed. And so the, the case is going to turn on the line between principal and inferior officers. What is that line? And there's some pieces 
that um, uh, you know, the court will be looking to. Um, and so, for example, one of the court's leading precedents in this area is the Edmonds case, um, which uh, uh, instructs courts to look to whether uh, an officer has a supervisor. Inferior officers, according to the court in this Edmonds case, are officers whose work is directed and supervised at some level by others who are appointed by presidential nomination. And the question um, then at stake in the Arthur's case is what kind of authority do these actors have? Are they in fact directed and supervised by other individuals within the hierarchy of the executive branch? Um, and at least arguably, arguably, the PTAP judges are the final word with respect to individual patent decision making within. The, um, the patent and trademark office by statute. And that is what raises the problem in the case. Because it may, makes them look a little bit more like principal officers who don't have their work review within the PTO structure. Um, they, the PTAB judges are also protected by um, certain removal restrictions, which makes the case very connected to problems versus conviction. Um, and what the, uh, the federal circuit did is it held that yes, in fact, under the current structure, PTAP judges are um, principal officers, not inferior officers, and the way to correct that um, as a matter of remedy is to sever the removal provisions from the statute, which uh, without them, according to the Federal Circuit, the judges uh, were more uh, could, could in fact treated as, uh, as principal, uh, as, excuse me, inferior officers. And so that's the case in a nutshell, and as you can see, Although it turns on this technical distinction between principal and inferior officers, I think it also presents the question about uh, the broader question: who controls? Who controls these people who are within the executive branch? And how should we draw those lines of control between principal and inferior officers? Um, I think that's a bigger question than, than uh, Arthur actually has implications for officers across the executive branch. Well, thank you very much for all of that. It is it is interesting to see the court return to the appointments clause so quickly after Lucia, and especially to see it return to agency uh, structure and independence so quickly after the CFPB case at the end of last summer. So it'll be interesting to watch those cases. Also interesting, I, I guess, that the PTAB, of all things, is back in court after the Supreme Court's oil states decision just a couple of years ago. Uh, but next, let's turn to, to Katie. Katie Townsend is the legal director for the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of Press. Um, Katie, I'm so glad you could join us today. You, you're in watching a case called the United States Fish and Wildlife Service versus Sierra Club. Could you tell us about it? Absolutely. And, and thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Um, the Sierra Club case, which the court will hear on November 2nd, is a federal Freedom of Information Act case coming out of the Ninth Circuit that turns really, I think we think it will turn, on the interpretation of Exemption 5 to FOIA. And just to step back for, for folks who aren't quite as mired in the world of, of the Federal Freedom of Information Act as I am on a regular basis, um, FOIA gives a statutory right to members of the press and the public to request access to uh, federal executive branch agency records. Um, there are nine statutory exemptions to the act which um, some some of which are discretionary, some of which um, particularly under exemption three, which which provides for um, uh, enables the government to withhold information that is it must be withheld um, on, pursuant to to other um, pursuant to other statutes. Um, those can be mandatory. Some of those exemptions can be mandatory. Um, but I think uh, that's the general structure. And I think looking at the, um, so the language of the individual exemptions um, are critically important for those of us like me who litigate um, FOIA cases on a routine basis. So the Sierra Club case involves exemption five, as I mentioned. Exemption five um, is a, a, a permissive or discretionary exemption that allows the government to withhold um, inter or interact agency memorandas or memoranda or letters um, that the agency would be able to withhold in litigation, were it in litigation. So essentially, it's sort of a litigation privilege type exemption. So it encompasses or has been held to encompass, as one might expect, the attorney-client privilege, for example, the attorney work product privilege, and what is central to the Sierra Club case, 
what's known as the deliberative process privilege. And this is a privilege that is uh, the purpose of which is to um, foster uh, candid, frank discussion uh, within the agency, within an agency with respect to specific decisions that are made. The idea being that if you expose or throw open, um, uh, pull back the curtain on all of those discussions, that it will inhibit um, a good agency decision making because it will inhibit frank discussion. Um, so really, the interpretation of the scope of the deliberative process privilege under Exemption 5 is what is at issue in the Sierra Club case. And I can I can speak a little bit about the facts of that case, which I think are a little bit complicated and, and actually may um, uh, make it a little bit more difficult for the court to, to take a, a very straightforward approach to interpreting that provision. But first, I wanted to say that the Reporters Committee did file an amicus brief in the Sierra Club case that focused on something very, I think, pragmatic, primarily very practical. And that is the overuse and abuse of the deliberative process privilege by federal agencies. The perspective of requesters, which again is really the perspective that I, I tend to represent. The Reporters Committee makes a lot of its own FOIA requests, but, but represents journalists and news organizations and FOIA litigation. From the, our perspective, Exemption 5, particularly use of the deliberative process privilege, is incredibly problematic. And I can talk a little bit later about um, the 2016 FOIA amendments that were really geared towards curbing overuse of really deliberative, the deliberative process privilege under Exemption 5. Um, but the fa facts of the Sierra Club case are, are a little bit complicated in, in the world of FOIA. Uh, the Sierra Club made um, uh, FOIA requests to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, as well as the service, as well as the um, National Maritime Fisheries Service. These are, I'll just call them the services collectively at this point, since I don't think it matters too much for purposes of, of this discussion. Made these requests to the services for certain records concerning um, an EPA rulemaking process. So pursuant to um, Pursuant to statute and, and regulations, the EPA, when it was making these um, cooling water um, intake rules, governing cooling water intake um, 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 regulations, was required to consult with the services um, to determine whether or not uh, there would be any impact or jeopardy to um, species protected by the Endangered Species Act. And, and the um, process is pretty pretty well laid out um, within statute, within the statute and, and within the regulations as to how the agency should do that. There are sort of timelines in place. Um, what complicated this case, I think, a little bit is that there are a couple of proposed rules. So the way that the, the, the sort of factual background, and if you look at the Ninth Circuit decision, um, it really lays out a timeline because it's, 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 a, it, it's very, um, um, I, I think it could potentially affect the outcome of the case. There were really two proposed rules. Um, one proposed rule that was provided to the services. The services provided what's known as a jeopardy opinion or a no jeopardy opinion. They, they, they respond to the agency and they uh, um, comment or provide the agency feedback on whether or not they, the proposed rule, their proposed agency action will implicate or put in jeopardy um, uh, any endangered species. Uh, and there was a jeopardy opinion that I think there's some confusion in the, in the factual record as to whether or not that was ever um, officially transmitted to the EPA. It seems as though it wasn't, at least the Ninth Circuit, um, the majority opinion of the Ninth Circuit concluded that it was not. Um, and then there was an additional proposed rule. So there was an initial proposed rule in November. There was, uh, a, no, there was a jeopardy opinions provided by the services, although not formally transmitted to the EPA. There was another round of sort of discussion. And again, I won't go through all of the timeline, but there was another round of discussion between the services, EPA. There was another proposed rule. And then ultimately there was a no jeopardy opinion that was issued. And the, the Sierra Club sought records concerning sort of each aspect of that, that um, timeline. So both records from the services concerning their initial jeopardy opinion, as well as records concerning their sort of later no jeopardy opinion with respect to the, the proposed rule that became final, became the final rule. Um, the question is whether or not those records are subject to deliberative process privilege. And, and the, the Ninth Circuit over a dissent um, from Judge Wallace, well, dissent in part, I should say, although I think it was a meaningful substantive dissent, um, concluded that the deliberative process privilege did not apply to a number of those records. And I think what this turns on is two requirements of the deliberative process privilege that courts have, have interpreted um, 
as being required to be shown by the agency. So um, that is at the agency. And again, this sets aside the sort of threshold requirement of interagency or intra-agency communication. I think there's no dispute that's met here. Um, the question is just, is are these records within the scope of the deliberative process privilege? And courts really look to two prongs. They look to whether or not um, the material is pre-decisional and whether it is deliberative. Um, and here, I think there's a real I would anticipate that one of the things that the Supreme Court would be focused on is whether or not it is pre-decisional um, and whether or not uh, the, the services determination, whether a jeopardy opinion by the services is, in fact, a decision, um, a final decision, at least from the perspective of that agency, or whether it is part of a larger decision making process by the EPA that would thereby make that a pre-decisional document. And that's really where I think the rubber is going to be the road in this case. Um, the again, Judge Wallace in dissent, uh, the Ninth Circuit rejected rehearing, but in his panel dissent um, uh, kind of took that latter approach, I would say, um, and argued that that many more of the records the Ninth Circuit held were not subject to deliberative process privilege were in fact both pre-decisional and deliberative because of the nature of the statutory decision-making process. Um, it was all part of that process and therefore it was all pre, pre-decisional. Um, the concern, obviously, on the part of advocates, and I would put myself in that, in that role or practitioners on the requester side of FOIA, is that that could, that could kind of swallow the definition of pre-decisional. There are a lot of decisions that are made by, um, agencies, particularly when they're communicating to other agencies that may be final within their own, um, within their own process but maybe not final if what you're looking at is sort of the end policy result that's reached by another agency. So that could potentially be be quite um, an expansion of, of um, the scope of Exemption 5. Um, and I, I think one of the things that, that FOIA advocates and FOIA practitioners are watching quite closely is, is just the approach in general that the court is going to take to interpreting this exemption. Um, in 2019, the court uh, addressed another FOIA case, the Food Marketing Institute against Argus Leader case, which looked at exemption four of FOIA, um, which is really designed to protect sort of trade secret confidential business information. So a separate exemption. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that case if it's, if it's interesting or if folks have questions about it. But I think one of the big takeaways from that case was um, a sort of a different approach to FOIA, perhaps, um, and uh, also perhaps a renewed interest by the Supreme Court in, in, in FOIA cases in general. Um, but Judge Justice Gorsuch in the FMI Argus Leader case took a real um, textual approach to FOIA. He wanted to eschew um, the National Parks test that had been used by the D.C. Circuit um, for quite some time to interpret the scope of Exemption 4. Um, he got rid of that, called it a relic from a bygone era of statutory interpretation, um, and wanted to focus solely on the language of Exemption 4 in, and interpreting the meaning of the word confidential within that, within that, um, within that exemption. And I think, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see whether the court takes a or attempts to take a sort of similar approach to Exemption 5 in the Sierra Club case, um, it's a little more difficult because the language of the deliberative process privilege is not built into the statute in the same way, obviously, that, that the language of Exemption 4 was, in fact, the statutory language. Um, but it will be interesting to see whether or not it's a similar approach, because I think as we saw with um, FMI and Argus Leader, it led to a, a significant expansion in the um in the scope of the exemption, enabling agencies to withhold more than they were able to do under the sort of older, outdated DC Circuit National Parks test. Well, thanks, Katie. Uh, as you were describing the case, I was thinking back to my old days practicing energy and, and environmental law and just thinking about the, the plethora of statutory frameworks, regulatory frameworks. We have so many agencies involved in one process. I could see how this case could have real impacts in 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 many many contexts where you have multiple agencies working together it also seems kind of an interesting echo of of a, the separate you know perennial administrative law debate over what's finality what's final agency action when can agency action be reviewed and so on and so it's an interesting case in just for FOIA's sake but it's also very interesting more broadly and I, i've got a follow-up question that we'll return to in just a little bit and speaking of questions before we turn to jonathan i just want to remind the audience if you have any questions and we'll have time for them 
uh, please do type them into the Q&A and, and I'll, I'll ask uh, as many of these questions as we can get to before the time expires. Now, so far we've talked about a small handful of cases, but of course there's a lot going on in the Supreme Court, just in, even just in the context of administrative law or, or, or public administration cases. We have uh, cases coming up involving the Affordable Care Act and other specific programs, but also these cases often raise sort of deeper questions about the role of the courts in general in judicial review of agency action and the, the types of remedies that the, the courts can give. And of course, these questions might be affected by the arrival of a new justice and the litigation could be affected by an arrival of a new president. Uh, so for all of that, I turn to my friend, Jonathan Adler. Jonathan, can you offer the, the broader perspective on, on what's happening in the courts right now on administrative law? You have, I, you have three sure- minutes. I'm certainly going to try. Um, I, I kind of feel I'm the utility infielder, I guess. Uh, I'm going to try and, and in a short period of time, cover uh, a range of cases and try and uh, make some broader thematic points about what we might see uh, this year uh, on the on the Supreme Court um, in what will be perhaps the first year of what we might characterize as the second Roberts Court or the real Roberts Court, as opposed to the Kennedy Court that we that ended. Uh, two years ago, um, uh, we will certainly see a different court. Now, um, in terms of themes, I, uh, one thing I, I thought it was worth highlighting right off the bat is that this term has several cases which involve the, the important issue that's certainly very important in administrative law about what the, the threshold question of whether or not courts can review the underlying question at issue. Um, you know, Article three standing, reviewability, final agency action, all these sorts of things are very important in administrative law. Uh, These are also areas of the law that have seemed to be particularly important to the Chief Justice. Uh, We all remember uh, during his confirmation hearing, the Chief Justice talked about the courts as umpires uh, calling balls and strikes. And most commentary tends to focus on the balls and strikes part. I think that actually misses what matters to the Chief, which is the umpire part. His view is that folks are there to see the game. They're not there to pay attention to the umpire. And if one looks at his time as chief justice, once he's a court uh, and once he's a chief justice in particular, that is interested in having the court recede into the background as much as possible. We can have a a debate about whether or not that is something that can actually be accomplished at this late date. But I think it's something that we see uh, occurring across a wide range of cases in terms of what the chief would like to accomplish. And it may even be playing a role in the fact that the court's docket uh, continues to shrink. The number of merits cases that the court hears each term gets smaller. So if we're talking about the court's ability to review cases, uh, Article Three standing is obviously something we care about. And there are two cases this term that raise uh, Article Three standing issues. First, as, as Adam mentioned, uh, the Affordable Care Act case, the seventh time the Affordable Care Act has come back to the Supreme Court on Texas versus California, raises an interesting question of severability, raises an interesting, I guess, meta question about whether or not a statutory provision that tells you to do something but that imposes no consequence on you for failing to do it is in fact telling you to do anything at all. Uh, But there is a threshold question in the Affordable Care Act case because uh, both the individual plaintiffs and the state plaintiffs are claiming that an unenforced statutory provision nonetheless is capable of causing an injury uh, that satisfies the requirements of Article 3. And I think both in terms of the individual plaintiffs and the state plaintiffs, uh, this certainly creates an opportunity if the court wants to tighten Article 3 standing, if it wants to revisit the doctrine of special solicitude for state standing that was announced in Massachusetts versus EPA and that we know the Chief Justice is not a fan of, this case presents that opportunity. And so while you know, it, it may well end up being a case about severability, but it might also be a case about standing. And I think it will be important to see what the court does with the Article Three standing issues in that case. Uh, another case which the court has recently accepted, which raises a standing question mixed with a mootness question, which is also something we, we were used to in administrative law, is the newest census case. And so this is a case challenging the lawfulness of the president's request for the, the Secretary of Commerce to give him a memorandum that uh, uh, distinguishes between um, those who are present uh, lawfully and, and, and those who are not. And the Justice Department, in asking the court to review that case, has raised a question 
about whether or not there is in fact Article Three standing in that case, or whether or not the case will even will be moot by the time it's heard. And basically, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying here a little bit, the claimed injury is the prospect of considering citizenship is or ha- was reducing the rate at which people respond to the census questionnaire. But the relief ordered is barring the Secretary of Commerce from including such information in the memorandum that the Secretary of Commerce will be delivering to the president at the end of the year. And so the Justice Department is arguing that doesn't line up. And in Article 3 standing, we should expect the relief to be connected to the injury that is being alleged, because one of the requirements of Article 3 standing is that the injury is redressable. And if the relief doesn't match up with that injury, well, then maybe there shouldn't be standing in the first place. Justice Department has also asked the question of, well, you know, if if census is done by the time the memo is issued, and certainly by the time the case is argued and heard, well, maybe then it's moot anyway. Um, there is no longer any ongoing injury, uh, and that can be, uh, and perhaps that's another reason to get rid of the case. This might be a case because of this focus on injury and mootness where the loss of Justice Ginsburg might be particularly felt because as uh, viewers might be aware or might remember, she wrote the opinion in Friends of the Earth versus Laidlaw Environmental Services, which was a very important decision both in, in casting a broad net for what qualifies as injury for purposes of Article Three standing, but also trying to corral mootness limitations on the court's jurisdiction, particularly where enforcement or other sorts of relief necessarily is coming after uh, the events in question that gave rise to the initial injury. Another question for plaintiffs being able to sue is whether or not there's a cause of action. Now, I do a lot of environmental work, and we have a case where environmental plaintiffs are suing to challenge uh, border wall construction and the and the reallocation of money from um, uh, uh, various parts of the Department of Defense's a budget to pay for wall construction. And the district court found that there's no cause of action here, that, that appropriations legislation doesn't authorize this, that uh, such concer- concerns about the environmental implications of, of this transfer of money aren't within the zone of interests of the appropriations, and that courts should not reason, read in an equitable cause of action uh, uh, for this sort of suit. And it's interesting that this is an environmental suit, because, of course, in the environmental statutes, we're used to there being very broad citizen suit provisions that make very clear that anybody and everybody can sue, um, but we don't have equivalent uh, uh, provisions in appropriations legislation. So a threshold question in Trump versus Sierra Club is this cause of action question. Um, another case relating to reviewability uh, that, that is actually, I think, a very important administrative law case. This is the case that, that the true admin law nerds are really excited about is CIC services versus Internal Revenue Service, because it relates to the uh, interaction between the Anti-Injunction Act and the Administrative Procedure Act. The question presented is whether the Anti-Injunction Act's bar on lawsuits for the purpose of restraining the assessment or collection of taxes also bars challenges to regulatory mandates issued by administrative agencies that are not taxes. So here, the IRS issues a, a memorandum, a, a notice, identifying what sorts of transactions are, are subject to various record-keeping and reporting requirements, uh, including uh, inclusion of reporting of those transactions with taxes. CIC services sues, saying, well, this should have gone through notice and comment. You didn't go through notice and comment. It's an unlawful rule. Um, and they were seeking pre-enforcement review. The response of the IRS is, well, since this will ultimately affect you or your client's tax liability, you're suing to prevent uh, the collection of taxes. The Anti-Injunction Act bars uh, bars this suit, and the Sixth Circuit uh, accepted that conclusion. Uh, um, I, I will tell you, I'm I'm quite skeptical of that conclusion. I think the dissent by Judge Nalbandian is quite good. I also heartily recommend the amicus brief by Kristen Hickman uh, supporting the petition for certiorari, which I think explains very clearly that. What matters is the nature of the action the agency is taking, not whether or not it's the IRS or some other agency. It's not the identity of the agency. It's the nature of their action. Uh, but I think this this case could be very important as it relates to the interaction between the Anti-Injunction Act and the APA. I know I'm, I'm, I'm reaching the limits of, of my time, so let me step back for a second and say a couple things looking forward about this term because of the changes that we will see 
potentially both on the court as early as next Monday and perhaps uh, in the White House as well. In terms of change on the court, um, one basic change is the court appears to be much more reluctant to take to grant certiorari when it has eight justices than when it has nine. So there are a bunch of cases that have been sitting around that might be granted rather quickly if a, a Judge Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed uh, this Monday, as is expected. Uh, in terms of her effect on administrative law cases, on the Seventh Circuit, she didn't get a lot. She got a bunch of immigration-related cases. Um, she had one big Chevron case, which I think is notable because while she calls herself a textualist, unlike some self-described textualist judges, she doesn't seem reluctant to reach step two of Chevron. She doesn't isn't reluctant to conclude that a statute is ambiguous on um, the relevant question. And so in a case concerning the uh, lawfulness of the so-called public charge rule, uh, she wrote a, a fairly lengthy dissent explaining why she thought the agency's action in that case was within the zone of ambiguity uh, of the phrase public charge. And I think yeah, it suggests that that even though she calls herself a textualist, she might not join uh, 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 the approach of other textualists in assuming that most statutes cannot be in, ambiguous. I also think as a lower court judge, she's shown an interest in standing, which relates to some points I made earlier. Really quickly, because I now I know I'm over time. Um, uh, we do want to pay attention about to what happens if there is a change in administration, um, because that obviously can change the policy preferences of the executive branch, and that can in turn affect what cases are before the court. Um, if uh, Joe Biden wins the election, it's very easy for a new administration to do things like withdraw cert petitions or to decide not to appeal adverse lower court judgments. So Trump administration regulations that are that that are rejected in lower courts, it's very easy for the new administration to just take that loss and move on. It's more difficult to um, uh, to change course when it comes to uh, merits petitions. It can be done, uh, but it is more difficult. And as we know from uh, the DACA decision of just two years ago, it is difficult and perhaps increasingly difficult for a new administration to simply say, we think what the old administration did was unlawful, so we're just going to wave it away. No, the court reminded us in that case, um, the new administration still must go through some process and must offer explanations greater than simply saying, we think the prior administration's actions were unlawful. I apologize for going over Adam, and I hope I didn't speak too fast. <laughs> Uh, but look forward no. to folks' questions in the discussion. Well, don't worry. Actually, let's stick with you for just a moment, Jonathan, because a couple of questions popped up in the Q&A while you're speaking, uh -oh. one from <laughs> Professor Bierman and one from one of our student fellows here at the Grace Center, Alexandra Kropicki. And they both asked variations on the question about the availability of non-statutory causes of action, uh, non-statutory review in the in the border wall case. Um, since they both popped up during that, why don't we go right to that, and then we'll we'll back up to broader questions. Um, do you, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I this is this is the sort of case, in my view, that that how we view the case kind of depends at what what angle you come at the case from. Um, you know, there, there are certain cases, and I think that, again, this is one of them where the the way the court understands the case is going to affect the way the court approaches it. And so, if the court approaches this as Plaintiffs are asking us to recognize an equitable cause of action that has never been recognized before in the context of appropriations. Well, you know, that sort of claim has been a non-starter on the Roberts Court for the last 15 years. And with the court becoming more conservative, that's a definite loser. Um, if the case is seen more as in line with, um, you know, kind of an APA type action, all actions are presumptively all agency actions are presumptively subject to judicial review. If the court sees that more of what's going on, well, then I could see it reject, rejecting that argument and concluding this is reviewable. And and I think we should remember that, you know, in cases like uh, the DACA case, um, in cases like the census case, you had similar jousting over how to frame what was actually going on. What did What did the agency do and what did the lower court do? And I think that affected how the court saw it. So, you know, I, I, it's a long way of saying I'm going to pay a lot of attention at oral argument to how I think the justices understand what it is they're reviewing. Because if they see it as agency action, presumptively reviewable, that's a really good sign for the Sierra Club. If they see it as you're asking us to do what? Equitable causes of action? This isn't the Warren Court. We don't do that anymore. Well, then, then I think the plaintiffs are in trouble. 
So uh, I want to ask a couple of, of sets of big picture questions uh, to all of you, and then we'll get back into the more detailed ones. And of course, there are so many other cases we haven't even gotten to and we won't have time to get to unless they come up with the questions. One that's on my radar is Wolf versus Innovation Law Labs, which has to do with the Department of Homeland Security's uh, migrant protection protocols. And the, the sort of the big picture issue that jumps out there is, is nationwide injunctions, which has been an issue that Justice Thomas has signaled some interest in, in pushing back against. But on the big picture, let's get back to Katie. Katie, after diving into FOIA Exemption 5 in this case, and you mentioned Exemption 4, I suspect a lot of our, of our uh, audience is less familiar with FOIA than some of the more sort of core administrative law issues. Could you just kind of situate this case in the broader themes of where FOIA litigation has been headed the last couple of years? Is there, is there any sort of directionality towards more disclosure, less disclosure, changing role of the course, any kind of context you could give us to, to give our audience a better sense of the big picture? Sure. And I will say that, um, you know, it is interesting, and I mentioned this, that it does seem that the court has a bit of a renewed interest in FOIA. Um, to see a FOIA case last year and a FOIA case this year is a bit unusual in the world of FOIA. Um, some of that may be attributable to Justice Kavanaugh, who had a lot of experience with FOIA in his tenure um, on the D.C. Circuit. Um, other justices, like uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, uh, from what we could tell, had zero FOIA decisions when she was on the Seventh Circuit. And I believe, if I recall correctly, that Justice Gorsuch had none when he was on the Tenth Circuit as well. So, so it's possible that there's a renewed interest simply because there's a, um, one justice on the court that has a lot of experience um, dealing with FOIA litigation at the Court of Appeals level. Um, that said, I think if if there's a trend, um, and I, w- I would note something that is a big caveat. It's it's interesting, I think, but it's also a big caveat. And that is that both of the decisions that I've talked about, the Sierra Club case that's pending now and the FMI against Argus Leader case are both being decided with respect to requests to which the 2016 FOIA Improvement Act do not apply. And that's important. And the reason that's important is because uh, Congress in 2016 amended FOIA to include a provision, uh, what we call the foreseeable harm requirement, that prevents um, agencies, that precludes agencies from withholding information that falls within the scope of a discretionary exemption um, uh, unless the agency reasonably foresees uh, harm to the interest to be protected by that exemption. And if you look at the legislative history, it's very clear that Congress was thinking about and particularly concerned about in a bipartisan way, the deliberative process privilege. Um, and the, the FOIA Improvement Act did other things as well, including a sunset for the deliberative process privilege. But the foreseeable harm requirement um, could potentially be a game changer for the interpretation of FOIA exemptions. And I think it's quite interesting that the court has taken in the last couple of years two cases um, involving FOIA requests to which the foreseeable harm requirement does not apply um, and, and has used those cases to dig into the interpretation of the exemption. Now, um, in the Argus Leader case, which is sort of the only case we have to go to, that certainly suggests that the court is going to take a more textual approach to look at the language, to do away with some of the tests like national parks that have been overlaid by the Court of Appeals, particularly the D.C. Circuit, but other courts of appeals um, over the text of FOIA. Um, to, to, to Usually those tests um, provide uh, for greater disclosure, actually, than I think the plain language of the of the text would provide. That's certainly the case with respect to Exemption 4 and the definition of, of confidential. The National Parks Test basically placed a competitive, a competitive harm type requirement on top of that um, concept of, of confidential, that language of confidential that um, the Supreme Court just tossed out. Um, that, so, so I think what we're seeing, if we're, if we're looking at exemptions that are going to be interpreted like Exemption 5 um, and the deliberative process privilege, if we're looking at the language of the deliberative process privilege, courts, the Ninth Circuit, the D.C. Circuit have interpreted those, those requirements of pre-decisional and uh, deliberative and what it means to be pre-decisional and what it means to be deliberative. And I think if the court takes a broad view of that, that will lead to less disclosure. Um, because that means the exemptions are broader. But in the sort of big picture sort of step back, um, the the text of FOIA itself is actually fantastic for requesters. I mean, it's a great statute and it's very requester friendly. Um, De novo review, for example, um, and the foreseeable harm requirement and what that requires. And I think, um, so I'm not necessarily... uh, 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 
if if the court applies a tech takes a textual approach to the language of the statute on a moving forward basis across the board, not just sort of selectively, but across the board, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for transparency. Jonathan, you, you pinged me in the, in the chat. Did you have a, a brief thought on FOIA before we go back to the CFPB case or the, the FHFA case? Oh, you're, you're muted, Jonathan. <laughs> One of the things I think is really interesting about the case this term is that you know, essentially what's going on is the environmental groups think that the agencies aren't being honest about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And historically, that's been a really hard argument to make about agency action. Uh, and one of the things we've all been wondering out about is whether or not the census decision and perhaps even the DACA decision suggests uh, and signals to lower courts that they should be more open to arguments that agencies aren't being honest and, and are acting in bad faith. And of course, if that's what you think is going on, you need to be able to get the documents to show it. And that is clearly what the environmental petitioners think is occurring here regarding the cooling intake rule. And so I think this case has some broader implications about whether or not litigants are going to be able to make the case that they think agencies are not being forthright about uh, th their own assessments of their own actions. Um, I, I have a similarly big picture question for Jonathan and, and, and Aditya. Just thinking about these other administrative law and administrative structure cases, uh, Aditya mentioned, you know, two cases that follow closely on other appointments clause cases or agency structure cases. Um, just in the last couple of years. And so I look at that and I wonder, well, maybe the court is trying to bring more and more authority back within the president's sort of direct line of control. But then I look at the way the court talks about deference and Chevron and the way that the Roberts court pushed back against the administration in the census case and in the DACA case. And it seems like they're sort of pushing back against presidential uh, discretion, at least. Um, that radically oversimplifies everything. But I'm wondering if, if both of you could maybe give your own thoughts on, on the bigger picture of, of, of these administrative law issues and, and where the court might be taking this in the longer term. Uh, Aditya, can we start with you? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Adam, as you were asking the question, I was reflecting on uh, uh, this, this event that occurred three, three years ago, this, this very event when it occurred. Um, at that time, in 2017, we were expecting decisions that term in the Lucia case, which we ultimately got um, about uh, where uh, SEC ALJs fit within the constitutional structure, and the oil states case, which, as you mentioned, you alluded to uh, just a, about half an hour ago, was was about um, the, uh, the the authority of the PTAP um, to adjudicate certain types of uh, patent disputes within the executive branch, rather than have those adjudications occur in Article Three courts. And at that time, I said, oh, look, you know, if we look thematically at the constitutional structure, cases um, that are pending before the court in 2017, uh, they seem to implicate the question or what is the, uh, the status of these adjudicatory bodies sitting within the executive branch? They're not actually federal courts, but they perform court-like functions, and how should we treat them for this various separation of powers purposes and I think here we are again three years later and we're looking at some cases and it's the same basic theme. And if I were to step back from the adjudicatory bodies aspect of it, um, I think, you know, many administrative law professors will say that if we look at the arc of cases from, say, the late 1970s to now or the 1980s to now, there is an increasingly formalistic tendency, formalist tendency in constitutional structure, in the approach the court takes to constitutional structure cases. And of course, there are exceptions to that. So, you know, we can't paint with too broad a brush, but at least with respect to these interpretations of Article 2, there appears to be a formalist tendency. And then I think with that formalist tendency, we have to ask ourselves, well, when has Congress departed from formalist principles in creating agency structures? Not uncommon for Congress to have done that with respect to adjudicatory bodies. And the cases then are just organic. Like the, the doctrine itself is created in this increasingly formalist way. And the cases um, that, that bubble up through the lower courts, they deal with adjudicatory bodies that are, um, that, that, that are within the executive branch because those bodies are in some tension with some of the formalist principles. Perhaps not 
inconsistent with them, but intentional with them such that they require Supreme Court review. And so down the pike, you know, if we were to just look at what might come up, we would be thinking about the TTAP or administrative law judges. What are the implications for those uh, bodies after the PTAP case is resolved? Thanks for hearkening back. I guess this is a nice time to invite our audience to come back for the preview in 2024. It'll be an exciting conversation. Jonathan, do you have any thoughts on this? And I noticed in the in the the, in the Q and A, we specifically questions about whether Chevron might move. There might be further movement on Chevron this year or on non delegation. Yeah. So uh, so in terms of your first question, first, I do think there is at least for some of the justices and perhaps the chief um, uh, a the, the increased formalism with the ditch you talked about, I think, is of a piece with the end. We're going to hold you responsible for what you do with that unified power. I think for the chief, there's a commonality there. Right. So I'm going to prevent Congress from screwing around with the agency structure and attenuating lines of accountability. But now that the power is yours, you better be straight with us, the courts, about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and I'm not saying that there's a majority for that conception, but I I, I would not be at all surprised if that's part of what the chief at least sees as a commonality there. On the broader questions, I'm skeptical that um, non-delegation is going to truly be revised, and I'm skeptical skeptical that Chevron is going to be thrown overboard. Um, I think that concerns about both doctrines have been motivating things like statutory interpretation through canons of avoidance and the like. I think they will continue to. to. I think that, you know, a, 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 a bulked up major questions doctrine, a greater focus on whether or not the agency is in fact exercising power that it was delegated when it purports to offer an authoritative interpretation. Those sorts of questions, I think, will become increasingly more important. But I'm skeptical there are five votes uh, to do major work on either one of those. And I don't see a case yet this term that's a great vehicle uh, for those, um, although as I mentioned before, there are a bunch of cases out there that the court, once it is back up to nine, may decide it's ready to take a look at. Uh, Aditya, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the broader Chevron and, 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 and non-delegation issues. I'd be interested in hearing them. And also a questioner asks, uh, Blake Emerson asks, whether you think that in light of the CELA law CFPB case, is, is the, the, um, the Collins uh, FHFA Agency independence case is that an easy case, or is it is it you know materially different from CELA? So I'll take those in the uh, the opposite order in which you stated them. Um, I think it's a good question by Professor Emerson. Um, I don't think it's slam dunk, and you know one has to go look at uh, Professor Nielsen's brief in the case um, and try to think this one through. But just in a nutshell, if I were to simplify it, give, give it thirty seconds because I know we're approaching the end of our time. Um, uh, Professor Nielsen says, look, there are three issues that the court has to think about here. The first is that we're dealing with an acting director of the FHFA, not the director of the FHFA. And does the same removal restriction apply to acting directors? Uh, and, and there's a particular acting director provision that is in the FHFA statute itself, which might be implicated. But obviously, there's the broader question about how to treat acting heads of agencies just generally. And I think that, um, you know, that's a broader question that the court might be uh, some, something that they might consider um, sometime in the next few terms because of the relationship between the branches of government um, as, as we can see in the nomination process. Um, the second point that the, uh, the, the brief makes deals with the functions of the FHFA. And the third point, which perhaps, you know, some will find persuasive, others not, is the specific language of the removal statute, which speaks to for-cause removal as opposed to um, to inefficiency, neglect of duty, and malfeasance in office. There's just different terminology used in the two statutes, and conceivably a line could be drawn between them. So uh, to me, at least the acting director aspect um, is something that really has to be grappled with. Your other question probably requires more than the time that I have available to speak to. <laughs> uh, I'll just say it's a very interesting question. We'll have to see what happens. Well, I, I want to say, since that you mentioned the, the sort of specific removal language, one of the really interesting articles he's written in the last couple of years, and as he keeps working through the history of this area, is was it President Taft in his original exercise of a four-cause removal? Um, what was it again? Uh, that's right. Well, thank you so much for mentioning it. Um, I have an article that's on uh, the, uh, the uh, Taft presidency. It's called Taft, Frankfurter, and the First Presidential Four-Cause Removal. And uh, in a nutshell, 
Um, I believe that most people thought that no president had ever invoked uh, for cause removal provision in order to remove uh, some, some, some officers for cause um, in the history of the United States government. But as a matter of fact, President Taft ultimately writes one of the important removal uh, Supreme Court precedents when it comes to Chief Justice, Myers versus the United States in 1926. On the very last day that he's in office, he removes two members of the Board of General Appraisers for inefficiency, neglect, duty, malfeasance in office. And there's a whole um, record that is created in that process, which is created by who, who would have thunk it, but actually Felix Frankfurter, who's a young lawyer um, within uh, the executive branch at that time. And so that was a fun story to tell. Well, great. Thanks, Aditya. Jonathan, do you have any last words? And, and I, I, I'm going to throw one little question at you. The original question we got in Q&A was on the severability side the sep- of, of Arthrex. I know that's not the case you're focused on, but you've been thinking about severability in, in general on a lot of these cases. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that to put you on the spot. So, I mean, severability is, you know, we had two cases that, that dug into severability last term, and there are several cases that raise severability in various aspects this term. You were focusing on it in the context of the healthcare case. I think what's interesting is we have a majority of the court, which repeatedly is invokes a blend of of kind of the conventional understanding of severability with this gloss of the chief justice minimalism, and they don't always differentiate between them between the two. The first being a kind of a focus on congressional intent, and then the chief justices disturb as little as possible. Um, but you know. Gorsuch and Thomas have raised questions about whether or not these approaches, in fact, are minimalist in terms of what they actually do and whether or not they're consistent with the original public meaning of uh, the nature of the judicial power. Uh, If you recall, back in Marbury versus Madison, Chief Justice Marshall doesn't ask about the severability of other provisions of the Judiciary Act. He simply says, look, this one provision of the Judiciary Act is unconstitutional. Therefore, we, the courts, will not enforce it. and Thomas and Gorsuch have at least raised the question of how do we think through that? So for me, as a way of kind of answering your question, I think what's really interesting about these cases, apart from what the court does on severability, is whether or not Thomas and Gorsuch are able to to gain any additional allies in their effort to produce, provoke some sort of rethinking of the underlying doctrine. And, and I think that you know any of these cases could be that, um, but we will see if, if they're successful in that. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, I just want to say on the big picture stuff that Jonathan and Aditya were talking about a moment ago, a great paper in recent years and one that was presented at a Gray Center conference a couple of years ago was by Jeff Pojanowski. Uh, it's at the Harvard Law Review and it's called Neoclassical Administrative Law, trying to synthesize all of this. And it, it spurred a very interesting response also in the Harvard Law Review by Adrian Vermeule. So I'd encourage folks to take a look at that. Katie, we'll let you have the last word here. And we're a moment over, but I do want to just spend one last minute if the audience will bear with us. Um, obviously, a lot's been affected in the last year by COVID-19, but FOIA and the operations of government are, are definitely among them. I'm just curious um, how the Reporters Committee has seen things play out in FOIA during the COVID year and whether you expect any issues to wind up in court over that. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Um, I think um, as like all government operations, boy operations were disrupted by remote, the need for remote working. Um, there are agencies within the federal government that have taken the position in, in, in court, including some of the law enforcement agencies, um, that they cannot conduct FOIA processing remotely. So um, they have basically shut down FOIA offices or did shut down FOIA offices for a period of time or significantly reduced FOIA processing. Um, and for those of you who follow um FOIA at all, you may be aware that there are significant substantial delays that go beyond what the statutory um, provisions allow for um, almost all the time when it comes to federal agencies responding to to requests. And I think, unfortunately, um, what we're going to see moving forward, even even as FOIA processing um, units within agencies get up and running, um, what you're going to see is additional delay and additional backlog that's been caused by the need for remote work, at least at some agencies, not all agencies, but some. And I think, I'm, uh, as I mentioned, um, I think to you before, Adam, before before we um, joined the group, I think uh, uh, we'll probably see as a result of that increased litigation in the district court. Um, many requesters um, see litigation as their ability to jump the line um, in FOIA processing, the only way to get 
FOIA records process more quickly. Um, and because of that, I think um, it, it's 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 not the last resort. I think we see a lot of of litigation brought simply because there has been no determination made on the request. And I think we'll see more of that as requesters try to figure out a way to get around those delays. Thanks, Katie. And thanks to all of our speakers today. And thanks especially to our audience for joining us today. I hope you'll continue to follow the Gray Center for updates on new research and, and future events. Please look out for our podcast, which we continue to use to send out not just audio from events like this, but also uh, separate interviews and conversations with scholars and practitioners on the things that they are working on. For example, this week, all this week and into next week, we're releasing audio of conversations with scholars ranging from Abby Gluck and Jesse Cross to Philip Wallach and Joe Postel on uh, Congress and the administrative state. I, it was an enjoyable set of conversations and I hope you'll tune into it. Uh, and these days there's a lot to discuss and to debate. So I'll look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks for joining us.